Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Creation Today Theology series, posted February 11, 2021, titled Eric Hovind, Lost History. What do you do if it's 2021, you were making most of your money on a speaking tour, and your ministry hasn't had a hit video since the movie you put out four years ago? Why, you create a four-purchase group Bible study curriculum based on said movie, of course. Apologia presents The Epistemology of Lost The Bible study inspired by Genesis Paradise Lost The movie that Wait, wait, Tony No, we're not doing a big elaborate opening for these What? It's just Eric sitting in front of a camera With some slow motion shots of him drinking coffee and acting pensive Fine You never want to have any fun Welcome to Apologia, where a former Christian takes a look at the claims of Christians. Welcome to the series Lost. I'm Eric Hoven. I'm, I'm really excited that you're taking this course with me. He really is excited. In full disclosure, Eric sent me an advanced copy of the series in order to get my feedback. So the same responses you're hearing from me today were also sent to the man on screen. The content of the videos themselves were already locked in, but I'm hoping that some of what I had to say will be addressed in the written material that goes to the groups who buy it. It's been said those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Well, we need to look back, not just at American history, but history from the beginning. That quote is attributed to Winston Churchill, who was not an American. I'm not sure if Eric was meaning to connect the quote and being American. But it's an interesting start for a lesson called Lost History. Churchill is also credited with this pithy quote, History is written by the victors, which joins other famous quotes about history. History is the version of past events that people have decided to agree upon. History is a pack of lies about events that never happened, told by people who weren't there. Now, I've come to give the field of history and the work of historians significantly more respect than I once did in my younger days, but primarily in so much as how difficult it is to be confident about what portion of written records correspond to reality, what portions do not, and admit which portions are gray area. I shared Genesis Paradise Lost with a soldier in the Canadian military. He said he would get around to watching it eventually. And after a while, I gave up asking him. Three weeks later, he contacted me in tears saying, it changed my life forever. He said his military buddy watched it and changed his heart and mind too. Their platoon is actually scheduled to watch it on movie night soon. God is good. If that happens, I really hope they also watch my Science of Genesis Paradise Lost series addressing the claims of the movie. And why are we kicking things off with testimony about someone who found a presentation compelling? 
Should I also open with some of the thousands of affirming comments I receive for my series? That'd be like a movie starting with reviews of the movie. Since what's compelling to one may not be compelling to another, let's just present our case, shall we? In this first session, I invite you on a journey with me to discover not only what Jesus taught about Genesis, but why in his own words, a proper understanding of Genesis was so critical. Indeed. In fact, it was the dissonance created when I came to realize that the Jesus of the Gospels seemed to affirm a literal, plain reading interpretation of Genesis, but that a literal, plain reading interpretation of Genesis does not conform to the evidence of reality. This sent me on my deep quest to learn much more about both the Old and New Testaments, and if there are good reasons to accept either of them. Think about this, and this is really important to grasp. No other religion at the time has written what Moses is affirming in Genesis chapter 1. It's interesting that Eric brings up Genesis chapter 1 in relation to other religions at the time. The oldest creation myth that survives today is from the Babylonian Mesopotamian Enuma Elish. There are copies of Enuma Elish that are hundreds of years older than the earliest fragments of Genesis. There's too much detail to go into the parallels between the Enuma Elish and Genesis chapter 1 here, but experts in ancient literature find undeniable links in form, language, poetic imagery, and structure. Enuma Elish starts with a formless void on day 1, separation of land and water on day 2 and 3, heavenly bodies in day 4, beasts on day 5, humanity on day 6, and then a period of rest. Don't get me wrong, there isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence on every detail, but for Eric, to propose that Genesis was entirely unique in the region would simply be incorrect. These writings were, were so radical compared to the rest of ancient literature. He's right about this. Many ancient literature experts, including Bible-affirming, Jesus-loving Christian experts, view the evidence as supporting the notion that Genesis 1 was written in response to the Enuma Elish. That the Hebrews created their own version of the same story, not to record history, but specifically to contrast theological differences in a way that would have been culturally relevant. This is just like Shepherd on the Search is a Christian response to Elf on the Shelf, or Pure Flix is a Christian response to Netflix. The audience is supposed to learn lessons from the obvious differences from the material it's inspired from. Not to blindly pretend the derivative idea is original. Here in Genesis chapter 1, we see a finite beginning. Everything else in Babylonian and ancient Sumerian literature portrays some form of eternal gradualism. Uh, the idea that the universe has always existed and it kind of gradually came into existence. The only people in ancient world literature to come out and declare with authority, there is a God who made everything. One of the fingerprints exposing the pagan origins of Genesis are the vestiges of polytheistic language. One can debate whether the authors of Genesis felt that Yahweh was merely the best God in a pantheon of gods, whether they merely failed to completely scrub the stories for a monotheistic viewpoint, or whether this was deliberate to eventually point to the idea of a trinity. Whatever the case, those around at the time of writing would have had the impression that Yahweh was the creator god, but not that he was the only god. The oldest known manuscripts of Genesis are found in some clay pots inside of a cave high in the cliffs of Qumran. They are from a collection now called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Dating back to around 150 BC, 
nothing close to the 1500 BC or so origins that Eric proposes. And you got to understand, especially after these scrolls were discovered, there's really no debate among conservative theologians that Moses was the author of the first five books of the Bible. This can only be true if you define conservative as agreeing that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Pure Mosaic authorship is almost universally rejected in general scholarship, including Jewish scholarship. I mean, Moses' death is recorded in Deuteronomy. Surely Eric doesn't think that Moses wrote that part. While there is heated debate on how many sources may have been involved, there is little debate among academics that the Pentateuch we have now is the result of many different documents being edited together, and not that carefully. Experts in ancient Hebrew readily identify sections of differing language, style, and perspective, mashed together and intercut, leaving stories and details being repeated multiple times, known as doublets and triplets among those who study the text. When these edits are detangled, currently problematic and awkward narratives end up flowing smoothly. Eric's own father holds that Genesis has ten different authors. God had to write the first chapter. Answers in Genesis acknowledges the same evidence, loosely supporting what they call a tablet model, where Moses was the final editor rather than the original writer of each Toledoth, or generational tale. To me, this view is held because of Jesus' affirmation rather than direct evidence, but at least it acknowledges the undeniable textual evidence. Interpret all that as you will, Eric's assertion that Mosaic authorship isn't debated even among those who champion young earth creationism, is just plain incorrect, and possibly designed to discourage his students from examining this claim for themselves. I mean, this homework assignment Eric gives for this session is literally geared around not looking at any opposing viewpoints. Now, I've got an assignment for you. Uh, if you have a smartphone or a computer, go to this website, searchcreation.org, searchcreation.org. It's a specifically designed search engine that only pulls articles from scientifically and theologically reliable sources. Look into it for yourselves. Don't limit yourself to what Eric thinks you should read. What is the best argument against Mosaic authorship that anyone, anywhere has come up with? And is that more or less convincing than the best argument for Mosaic authorship? It's a little more special and satisfying when you do the work and you find them. Now we've arrived at the point in the study where Eric is going to play a portion of Genesis Paradise Lost the movie. What did Moses intend to communicate when he wrote Genesis? Tell you what, let's get some Hebrew scholars and theologians and a couple scientists to weigh in on this question. Unfortunately, Hebrew scholars, plural, is a bit of a stretch. There's only one person in the segment who could be called that. Dr. Jeremy Lyons, whose Master's of Divinity degree included biblical languages. Other than Dr. Lyons, we've got a microbiologist, a geologist, a medical doctor, an astronomer, an engineer, a high school teacher, and another high school teacher. No formal training in the Hebrew language or literature here. As a guy on YouTube, I'm obviously not advocating that only people with formal degrees in a topic can have valuable insights into the topic, but Eric was the one introducing credentials as if they should add authority here. They don't. Except for Dr. Lyons. So you might expect he does most of the talking in this section. Nope. His contribution is to reiterate the question, 
and for some reason everyone else answers for him. When we read the first chapter of the Torah, we have to ask, what kind of text is this? What type of literature is this? I covered this section of the film in part two of Science of Genesis Paradise Lost, so I invite you to watch that video for my commentary, including a montage of actual Hebrew experts refuting this passionate, absolute, unequivocal proclamation by the high school teacher that his particular interpretation of a Hebrew word is necessarily universal. No one can say that the Hebrew word yom doesn't mean a 24-hour day. From God's perspective, it's a day. From our perspective, Gershom, it's what? Could be a billion years. So the six days of creation needn't be much different. They can indeed be allegory. God created days on the fourth day. So we got three of these uh, yoms, which are not of the 24-hour. To argue that the world was created in six days equals six days is something that is asinine to even begin to discuss. If, if Genesis 1 was just written by Moses, you know, out of his own imagination, he would never think to put things in the order that they're in. As I've already laid out, it is the consensus of actual Hebrew scholars that it is unlikely Moses wrote Genesis 1. Perhaps he was involved in a later editing process, but more importantly, that Genesis 1 in particular was a later addition to the text, written as a direct theological response to the Enuma Elish, which all available evidence tells us predated the Old Testament. The Enuma Elish established this order, and it would have been commonly known in that place and time. The evidence suggests that the author of Genesis borrowed this order for cultural impact. You know, I hear people all the time say, let's not focus on Genesis, just teach people what Jesus taught. Yeah, you know what? I love the idea of teaching what Jesus taught. And if we teach what Jesus taught, then we have to teach Genesis because Jesus actually taught on Genesis. As I mentioned, my own struggle with what Jesus taught about Genesis and what reality and science affirms was very important for my own faith journey. I agree, it is something Christians should contemplate seriously. How did Jesus interpret these books? Now, I'm going to pause right here. If you're not a believer in Jesus, this may not sound like a big deal. But for those of us who, uh, who trust him, this is a huge deal. Correct. This next section of the study is entirely for people who already accept the Bible as some kind of ultimate authority. And, of course, this line of reasoning is entirely circular. The Bible is true because the Bible says it's true because the Bible says it's true because the Bible says it's true. In the case of the Bible, Eric calls this a virtuous circle rather than a vicious circle, but I myself find no virtue in it. If the Bible is true, that should be able to be validated with external corroboration. But we'll get more into that in future sessions. I'm going to skip most of this section, but if you're a Christian watching this, Eric does point out quite a list of times that the Jesus portrayed in the Gospels references the Old Testament. And in his teachings, he speaks of Adam and Eve as the first married couple. He claims that Abel was the very first prophet who was martyred. Jesus refers to Noah and the flood. He references the account of Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. He even spoke of the manna from heaven. The experiences of Lot and his wife, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, the miracles of Elijah, even Jonah and the big fish. Every single one of those references are from the Old Testament, many of them from the book of Genesis. Now, these accounts, you got to understand, these were not 
parables or, or uh, allegories. If you love Jesus, but think that the Old Testament is outdated, or immoral, or not to be taken literally, you should realize that Jesus endorsed it. Something you'll want to come to grips with. Some people might say, Eric, that's cool and all that uh, you can prove Jesus believed in Genesis, but I don't believe Jesus. I don't trust the Bible. I don't trust religion. I don't trust any of it. Good insights, Eric. That's exactly what I would say. Okay. Well, can I ask you a question? Who or what are you trusting right now? And why? Interesting questions. First, there's definitely no who that I just implicitly trust. I grew up being taught that authority was the best way to know things. Blindly follow teachers, pastors, parents, and the book Eric has in his lap. Once I started investigating things for myself, I learned how wrong the authorities in my life have been on so many things. They weren't necessarily lying, though I suspect some may have been, but they were simply wrong because they had accepted the authority of the people who taught them. I was able to break this chain of reverence for authority, and I hope that you can too. What do I trust? I trust reality. Unfortunately, by necessity, I'm forced to gain input from imperfect senses and interpret with an imperfect brain. But that's why I apportion my confidence to the evidence available, and to the extent to which it can be corroborated externally, and with unique future predictions. The extent to which something conforms to reality is the extent to which it is true. This is going to be the focus of a future class session. And since I know Eric will bring it up, what I call reality could be a simulation. I could be a brain in a vat. If so, then that's the hand I'm dealt, and it changes nothing about my epistemology, the method by which I come to believe things. Could you be wrong about what you believe? Of course, there are things about which I could be wrong. The simplest way to be wrong is simply not to have sufficient information. I try to learn new things every day even though that means possibly discovering that I've been wrong in the past. But there are also things I believe that are simply definitionally true. Like a circle cannot be a square, a bachelor cannot be married, and 2 plus 2 equals 4 in base 10 numerology. Under my definitional usage, I cannot actually be wrong about this category of thing. There are also things I believe that could coincidentally happen to be true even if I haven't arrived at them with adequate justification. If I believe that there are an odd number of jelly beans in a jar at a given instant, I may well happen to be correct. If indeed there are an odd number, I cannot be wrong, even if my certainty level is very low. I could go on, but this is probably far beyond the simple answer you're looking for at this point. And if you are wrong, would you even want to know it? Absolutely, unequivocally, yes. I want to believe as many true things and as few false things as possible. Do you, Eric? See, in this series, we're going to be looking at science and reason, which I believe are two gifts from God. And I think you're going to be really surprised by what we discover. I hope that's true. As I said, I like learning new things. If it's out already, tap on the thumbnail on screen now to see part two, Lost Trust. If not, tap for my one-on-one -on -one conversation with Eric Hovind, and I'll see you over there. Later.